I'd like you to open your Bible once again to Luke chapter 21 and verse 34 through 36. Now, for the last several Sundays, I've been speaking on using this as a text and been speaking on the subject of the day that is, that's now, and the day that is coming, the day that is predicted, prophesied, and revealed in Scripture that is coming upon this whole world. And that the whole design of this is our preparation for it so that we're not caught, as he says in this section of Scripture, that we're not caught unawares. Let's read it. Verse 34, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare, it shall come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now he says, you watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. While we're on this subject, I want to talk today about God's provision for a worthy escape. Because, he said, pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape what's coming on the whole world, which is described, the whole world will be taken like in a snare. It's like when you put a trap out to catch an animal, he doesn't know the trap is there. Now, we've heard about what's coming. We've been told many times in our lives about what's going to happen in the world, the prediction of this and that, and yet people seem to ignore that, set it aside, it hadn't happened yet, doesn't look like it's going to happen, and their life is, well, like he said, cares of this life. It's just life as usual. Not really paying attention, warned, but indifferent. And one day it happens, and you hadn't been in any mode of preparation for it, and you can't escape it. And you're taken in by it. Now, the Bible tells us from the lips of Jesus, he said, you pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. You don't want to be here. You don't want to be in it. You don't want to be here in, in that time. Pray that you'll be accounted worthy to escape. Now, the question is, that leads to the message. Then in what way has God provided for our escape? In other words, what can I employ in my life as a means of escape from all that is coming? What can I do? What has been given to me that I can do and put to practice to escape all these things? Because that's what we all want. Now listen to these words. In the message to John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, these words were spoken by God about John the Baptist, that when he comes, he said, he will make ready his ministry. What God will send him to do on this earth will affect people. And he said, he will be sent to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, does that mean we should be prepared? Does that mean there are adjustments that we're going to have to make in our life and pay attention to what he said we ought to do? And that we should put to death or crucify everything that's going to be judged. I don't want to be judged. The Lord is coming. Now, we can be prepared. You can be prepared. Whether you are or not depends on you. I cannot prepare you. I cannot make you prepare. The purpose of ministry is to make you do nothing, but it's to inform you of what God has said. Now, whether or not you want to heed it is up to you. Whether or not you want to believe it is up to you. We live in a day of everybody's opinion becomes his law, becomes his own little way. But there is a way that seems right, but it's a way of death. The only thing that will work for us in the end is what God says. All these philosophies of man, all of man's opinions and heady conclusions and findings, that will amount to nothing. And a man is a fool who lives in this life, is warned about what's coming, and does not prepare for it. Because he wasted his whole life, and in the end, for eternity, he's lost. How foolish is that? So he said to John the Baptist, he said, now his mission 
will be to make ready a people that God wants prepared. Paul writing to the Corinthians, he said in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, in his passion for these people who were struggling, the Corinthians were not doing good all the time. They had done good, sometimes did do good, but they were kind of fighting and fussing and up and down and ignoring things and letting things slide. And Paul, in his passionate plea to those people, he said, I have espoused you. I have engaged you. You are committed to the Lord. He said, to be a chaste virgin in Christ. In other words, I want the effect of the words of God that he's given me that I'm giving to you. I want those words to be received by you so that it turns you into what would be like a committed, loving, chaste virgin. No matter what else your life was about, no matter how bad it was, how ugly and desperate and sinful your life was, there is a way that God can affect you if you'll receive it and turn you into a chaste version. Because you see, we all have to change. I'm not looking at anybody who doesn't need change. All of us in here came to Christ as a piece of ore. Somebody dug us out of a hole. Some evangelist drug us out of a hole somewhere out of the side of a mountain, blasted us, and we fell out. And then that piece of ore sprouted legs and found its way into a church house, a big chunk of nothing. But inside that ore, there's gold. There is something inside that that God saved. We've got to get rid of all that trash on the outside of it. And we've all got it. There's not a soul in here that doesn't need to crucify something, get rid of something, be washed of something, cleansed of something. All of us do purged. All of us. That's why we're here. We're in this room because we need to be here. And so this has to take, and Paul wants to present his people that way. The Great Commission. Jesus said before he went back up to heaven, he said, go ye into all the world, told his disciples, the people who were going to carry the word, his messengers. He said, go you into all the world and make disciples. The King James says teach, but it's the word make disciples. Go into all the world and get busy with human lives that are messed up, that are going to be judged, you're going to perish. You go and get involved with these people and make disciples out of them. I want you to teach them to observe all things, whatever I have told you. I want you to teach the same thing to them. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. You teach them what I have told you because I'm going to use words and change lives. I don't want you to try to be sophisticated and heady and cute. You just give them the word because God's going to use words to change our lives. Which implies with all of this that the teacher, whoever is going to bring the word, the vessel that's going to carry the word, is going to have to believe it himself. Let me tell you something. Anybody, I believe, any intelligent person, you know, if both sides of his brain works, could go to a school and learn how to preach. Actors do it all the time in movies. Some of them were pretty good at it. Politicians would make good preachers. Some of them. Because you can do this. You can act this thing. But if you don't believe this, you'll perish. Because that would not only make you a hypocrite, but you'll mislead people. And eventually they'll follow you thinking that you're leading them to Christ. And you yourself are like the blind leading the blind. You fall into a ditch. So whoever's going to be sent, whoever God is going to send forth, this person's got to have a heart for this word himself. He can't leave anything out of it. If this is what it says to do, then you've got to commit yourself to doing that because eventually people are going to find you out. They'll either know you're the real deal or you're a charlatan. But you're going to be sent. If you're called, you're going to be sent. And that's why you study. That's why you learn. That's why you get particular about what you believe. That's why you talk to yourself a lot about what do I believe about this or that? What would I say to somebody that asked me this question? And you say, well, I don't know. Well, then before you tell others how to deal with it, you find out for yourself how you would deal with it. 
before you tell people to trust God for this or that, trust him yourself. Before you tell people they should take up the cross and follow Christ, you take it up yourself. That none of us are perfect. God doesn't choose perfect men. He gives them a perfect word. We all have to yield to it. But somebody has got to preach it. Somebody's got to take it out. Like Paul wrote in Romans, he said, how can the people believe you know, the world's full of lost people. How are those people going to believe unless somebody is sent? He said, the fields are white unto harvest, Jesus said. Pray that God would send workers into the harvest. Workers who themselves are committed to Christ and with passion for a word that not only saved them, carry that word to these people knowing it will do the same thing for them. People who will, as Paul said, will labor labor in this work because if we don't get it that way i don't know that any of us will escape the word has to have a dramatic effect on our life we have to become the people that are as they say word of god inside minded <clears throat> now how will god do this well he will use ministry of course where do we find this ministry usually in the church the church this is God's provision for the great escape, the church. The church is what God established. Well, technically, the word church means building. But assembly, the Greek word ekklesia, building or assembly, the church is a coming together of people. Hopefully, people who've had a common experience, people who have a common desire People who see the same need. When you can get a group of people together in one accord, you have Pentecost. That's right. Things happen. That's not easy because you look around who all is here today, you think, how in the world could God ever put this together? Our little church here doesn't consist of local folks. That is, people that are home-born indigenous Shelby Countyans. Almost everybody in here came here from somewhere else. Just a few of you here from Shelbyville. All the rest of us are aliens, <laughs> outsiders. Why would God bring a bunch of people from different parts of the country to different ideas? Hard-headed, some are so hard-headed, you can't hardly pastor them. I would use the word hardly kindly. Because <laughs> they're all set. Where they came from, they were set in their way. I'll tell you one thing. Here they come, all right, I'm, I'm here now. That's what you got to say. That's not easy to look at every Sunday or every Wednesday if they're here. How do you do this? How is God going to minister to something like that with people? Is that why he told Jeremiah not to be bothered by what he sees? Don't let their look turn you away. He gave one man a head as hard as flint. Remember that? So he wouldn't be dismayed by how people respond. But God sets up the church, and in the church, he puts pastors and teachers. I don't know why anybody in the world would ever want to be a pastor, not in the biblical sense. For some people, it's a good job. You got good benefits, nice parsonage, and it's just a job. It is nothing more than a job. And many churches are just enterprises. But the real deal, the real New Testament church, it's when God brings together his people that he has saved who need what he's going to give them in that church, in that assembly. They need to hear, they need to listen, they need to partake. And I don't know what people do without that. But that's not my concern today because where I am, there are people. And so he puts all of these kind of people in the church because... This is the way God's going to change us and prepare us, and this is why we're going to escape. Something is going to happen to us as we assemble. Something is going to change in our life that makes us favorable to God. Something is offered to us that is able to change everything about us. And hopefully that somebody will be in charge. And again, I, I didn't design this message 
for this that I'm doing today, the ministry of a pastor. It just happens to be the truth whether I'm here or not. That a pastor is one who has to oversee a flock. A flock is a church, the gathering of his sheep. Sheep are not noted to be real smart, but you are. They tend to wander and be afraid at the least things. They will self-destruct unless somebody watches them. They're easy prey for the wolf. In fact, when the wolf grabs a sheep, if you ever want to pick up a sheep, just grab his back, grab the wool on his back, and pull him up. Just pull up, and when his feet come, he just quits. He just absolutely has no fight in him. And that's how easy it is to consume one of God's people. A lot of times, you just grab them, put a little fear in them, and they quit. Now, somebody has to minister to us so that won't happen to us. We don't want that to happen to us. In fact, turn to Revelation 21. And keep your finger wherever we were. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. Now, this is what ministry would not want to happen to you. Because what you see in Revelation 21.8 is God's judgment against people who would not change. Or who did not want to be changed. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, but the fearful. Now, the word fearful means cowardly, the timid, those who shrink and draw back. I've been here long enough to know I've been a Christian quite a while now. I have found and learned by observation and association that it doesn't take much for most Christians to be afraid. It doesn't take much of an event a sign, a signal for Christians to cower and shrink, and the first thing they want to doubt is what they've heard. They believe it when nothing's there to challenge it, but when it's challenged, does he really heal? We sing about it all the time. Does he really provide? We talk about that. Does he really protect us? Will he really keep us as we go out and come in? Will he really prosper us? Oh, we love to hear about it and sing about it. What happens when it's not working? When you're being put to the test? The first downfall is fear. The greatest weapon the devil's got is fear. Because with fear comes pictures, images. You feel something. You did something. There's a certain kind of pain, and there's a picture of you in a casket. Now, we think it's funny now, but when you're going through it or if you're sitting here today and you're bothered by something like that, it's not very funny. But on the other hand, that's just the devil. The devil comes to kill and to steal and destroy. We need to be taught that, and you've been taught that. We need to know that God's word is a weapon against everything that brings fear. Even the psalmist said, what time I am afraid, I'll trust the Lord. I will not be ruled by fear, but if you are, and if you have proven with your life and choices that you're fearful, here's what it says to you, but the fearful. And the next group is the companion of fear and the unbelieving. Unbelieving. Usually because of fear, people have unbelief. They don't feel something. They don't see something. They cannot witness to the certainty of something, so they cannot hold back from believing that. The choices they make don't indicate that they believe. There's something wrong, but that's their choice. Everybody in this room lives by choices. You are what you are right now because of the choices you've been making all your life. You are what you are right now. You didn't have to do that, but you did it. That's where you are. That's what you are. But the fearful and the unbelieving. Should not we then in the ministry attack fear and unbelief? Should there not be a lot of attention called to the fact that fear and unbelief is going to keep people out of heaven? Read it. It keeps you out. You won't be there. So if ministry is here to help you escape that, then we deal with it. We talk about it. We teach against it. We jump up and down and holler at you. You know why? Because we don't like you. No, <laughs> because we care. If somebody doesn't arrest 
These fearful, unbelieving traits in our life that rule and guide us, you won't make it. And it's not the preacher's fault. You're welcome. Because I can't make you believe. I can't make you unafraid. I can't make you do what's right. I can tell you what to do that I believe the Bible says. You judge it for yourself. Search the scripture. See if that's in the Bible. If it is, believe it because the Bible said it, not because the preacher said it. Because you relate to God, not to me. You relate to me as a brother, as a connection in the body. But your soul is hooked up with God, and it's to him you must give an account. I can tell you what to do. I can't make you do it. I can tell you what's right. I can't make you do it. I can tell you how to walk. I can't make you do it. But if I didn't care how you walked, I wouldn't deal with it. We do like the average church, just make everybody happy, make everybody comfortable. If you do that, they'll give, and they'll come back, and you'll be famous, and they'll perish. But look at the third thing, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable. The word has the idea of spiritually disgusting. So far removed from what God wants, doing things that are disgusting. And then you get here into all different kinds of immorality and uncleanness. Things that are an abomination to God. Another word, murderers. The idea behind the word in the early centuries was assassin. Somebody who would be hired to get rid of a political opponent or something like that. Or, or somebody, some woman's husband, so she would be available. It's whatever. You would take somebody's life who was innocent. But that now, that word murder has a greater distance than that. Murder could apply to abortion. Well, it could. It depends on how your head's been messed with. See, some people try to justify removing a living thing from a woman's body because it's not really a human being. It's just a mass, a glob, something in there that wiggles and makes you discomfortable, ruins your figure. I heard the other day, I think Bonnie was listening. I don't know if she, I think she was. But uh, a lady was describing a lady doctor was quoted as in one of these quotes on one of these news things that a fetus was a parasitic something, and then she mentioned something, a parasite of some sort, you know, feeding on a woman's body. And I thought, a parasite? A parasite? I always thought parasites were worms, <laughs> bugs and stuff. A fetus is a parasite? A parasite? Something that's in there just messing everything up. Is that what a parasite is? And so therefore they don't feel so bad about getting rid of it. I'm talking to parasites. It's funny, you know, whoops, you became a human. <laughs> We're living in a corrupt day. You're living in an hour when men's minds are corrupted by much learning. As the Bible says, thinking themselves to be wise, they have become fools. They think they're doing so much right, and they're so heady and so sophisticated in their inventions and their designs and in their laboratories and in their thinking. And all they are doing is just sealing up their judgment. It's going to get worse and worse because the Bible said evil men and seducers will get worse and worse. What must God think? But children are a gift of the Lord, and a doctor for money, an educated man is willing to take a baby out of a woman's body by various methods and ways and destroy its life. That's murder. Yeah. I don't care what anybody thinks about it, or if it's even politically incorrect, I could care less about political whatevers. Abortion is murder. And we have murdered more people in this country than could ever be imagined legally and by law. There is no way the United States can escape 
judgment. And it is coming and probably in your lifetime and my lifetime. And I'm on the end of my life, and most of you are in the early parts or the middle of it, but it's going to happen. Because judgment, God does not turn his head at wrong and error and ugliness. Another thing he mentioned is whoremongers. Just turn the TV on and, or buy one of those movie magazines. Don't buy one. And you read all about whoremongers. See, whore is such an awful word to say in church, we don't like to hear that word. There's a lot of Bible words that we don't want to use. But the Bible describes it in very disgusting terms, a whore and whoremonger. Men running after women, women running after men, married or unmarried, doesn't matter. Seeking sexual satisfactions with whoever, wherever, however. And this is what's described. None of them will make it to heaven. If that's your lifestyle, that's the way you live, and there's no repentance, you're going to wind up that way. The other word is sorcerer. The Greek word for sorcery here, or sorcerers, is pharmakia. Drugs. It's called drugs, potions, and spells. The old commentaries and men of yesteryear have a hard time with the idea that it could be drugs. Yet in Revelation 18, one of the signs in the last day that will cause the world to come to a halt is sorceries or drugs, drug use, drug infestations. People in America can hardly live without drugs, no matter the side effects. I heard of a side effect just the other night can cause cancer and can cause a heart attack, could cause stroke, and people take it anyway. Now, that's ignorance gone to seed. To put something in your mouth that absolutely is dangerous to your body because you got a problem here, you're going to create an oven over here, but take heart. There's another drug to deal with this one. It'll affect this, but they got one over here to do with this. People cannot live without their drugs. Now they're using over-the-counter drugs to do things that street drugs are for. Now drugs are just drugs. Kids are stealing parents' drugs, taking them to school, and trading drugs and pills. What's wrong? Something's wrong with this picture. Is everybody so caught up in a high? They want to become or be somebody else or act differently that they don't like who they really are. They want to be somebody else. And they're willing to ruin their body to do it. You're living in a day in which this is ugly all over the world. There's no morality or decency except in a few places with a few people. If girls are virgins today, why, well, they're just old-fashioned, little nerdy, prude, whatever little girls or older girls. And yet all these other girls don't realize it because somebody either didn't tell them, was afraid to tell them, or told them and they forgot it. If you want to live like that, the consequences of your choice is death. Yeah. Oh, but you're young, and when you're young, there's no way you could die because, you, man, you're cool and you're groovy. And you're going to die. So back to where we started. God puts ministry in the church to warn people. To tell you, you cannot do this and go to heaven. You cannot have this in your life as a lifestyle and make it. You can't. Because he said, and I'll read it now. I'm sure you found it by now. He said that the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, forgot about that, that's the big sports arenas and whoever you're trusting in, and all liars, there's another one, we didn't even get that one, liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Be a lot of people there, a lot of people there. Now, back to this thing about pastors and teachers and their mission and responsibility to the people that God puts in the church. God didn't bring a bunch of people together leaderless. Do you believe that? Amen. I've read a book once years ago that said we don't need pastors in churches. Just put people in a room, put them in a circle, and God will take over. I don't know what God they're talking about, but if you didn't need a pastor, God wouldn't have appointed them. And yet the ones he gives isn't exactly the one we wanted. We wanted the one we saw in the tube. 
but he gives us what he gives us. Now, what do they do? Let me see. The first thing that they're responsible to do, their primary mission is instruction. Instruction. Why teaching? Why must the people come together to be instructed? Because instruction is the basis of conviction. Conviction is the basis of faith. And you cannot have faith without the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So we must come with words, not with clever ideas and new programs and the inventions of the minds of man as to what everybody else is doing and we can do it just as good. We come with words. As somebody said about meetings in the past, why does everybody carry notebooks to that church? Why does he preach so long? Well, he really sometimes isn't preaching, just exhorting. Sometimes he preaches. Sometimes he teaches. But it's the word. It's the ministry of the word. In its various forms, its various designs. Because if you don't hear the word, you don't know how to relate to God. God is not an idea. He is specifically defined in the word as to who he is. And on that basis, you relate to him. He is who he is. And he is always right. And if you don't agree with him, you're always wrong. And there's got to be a change. When Jesus said, learn of me, that means find out who I am. Who am I? The eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was sitting in a chariot reading about Isaiah, and he couldn't get it. And here was Philip, who went to the chariot, and the Lord said, talk to him. And he said, what are you reading? Do you understand? No, he said, let me tell you what it says. And when he understood it, he said, I got it, and he got baptized. Isn't that the way it works? We don't always know what we're talking about. God brings us together. And it's not because somebody is so smart and knows everything. It's the anointing that breaks the yokes. And God's anointing just opens eyes. And one day, uh, the preacher says things that he didn't know to say that, but they came out of his mouth. You know why? Because God can do that. And when they came out of his mouth, your eyes flew open, and you thought, I see it. And there was gladness in your heart because of revelation. Something was made clear to you that you had never had clear before. It became a life changer, and it became a treasure. And you held fast to that word because now you know that when you do this, this is absolutely the will of God. But isn't that what Paul said it's all about? The renewing of your mind. Remember that in Romans 12 too? Come out from the world. Get away from all of that. Stay with this word because this is what renews your mind so that you can prove what the will of God is. When you can prove what the will of God is, it doesn't matter if anybody contested or not. Or if your friends say, well, that's the dumbest thing. It doesn't matter what they say. You know what you believe. You know what you believe because God showed you that, and he showed you that while you went to listen to it. And when you went to listen to it and your heart was open, bang, you got it. If your heart is open this morning, God will show you things. If your heart is open, if you're here because it's your duty, it's a routine, it's a Sunday ritual, you won't get anything of it. You'll be the same next week as you were this week. But if you came because I need thee every hour... Teach me thy words, thy ways, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. If you have a hunger, if there is a desire in your heart in here this morning to hear this, it's easy to preach to you. It's easy to teach you because you're receiving. You want it. You just sort of drag it out and God gives it from heaven. And when that happens, it's like the psalmist said, he has made me glad. He has filled my heart with praise. I just thank God that I can see things now I could never see before. And I know this is right. And I know that nobody's going to talk me out of this. Fear is starting to take a whooping. A whipping. Fear is starting to experience defeat. Because the more this word takes over, as the psalmist said, he has delivered me from all my fears. And the apprehension of tomorrow, what if? Doesn't matter. God's already in my tomorrows. 
He's already there. He already knows the end from the beginning. He didn't lead me to a place I'm going to fail. He didn't save me for that. He tests me, but he leads me. And it's all because of the awakening power of the word of God. It comes and it says things. Let me show you how they said this in the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3 and then chapter 23. Turn to those two chapters, Jeremiah 3 and Jeremiah 23. This is what God said about instruction, or the biblical word would be feed, F-E-E-D, feed. Let's assume this morning that I am trying to feed you. Would you understand it? If I said what I am doing right now is the feeding process, I'm not feeding you things you haven't eaten before. I'm not feeding you things you haven't heard before. Have you ever eaten the same thing twice before? Or has your wife or your mother ever fixed something that was exciting? I mean, and you were, but my mama can make, and you, oh, biscuits and gravy. Whether it's sausage gravy or chicken gravy, a little flour and put a little milk in there and a little salt and pepper and get it to the right consistency, pour it in a bowl and get some new biscuits, brand new biscuits, newly manufactured. And you just pop that thing open and lay it in your plate and get you a spoonful of that milk gravy and put it on them biscuits. Now, if you've never had that before, you might think, ew. If you know anybody like that, invite them to your house and make them some. <laughs> have you ever had biscuits and gravy that were exceptional? You local folks, have you? Was that the last time you ate them? Well, I've already had that. I've heard dogs. No, I've eaten that before. You hope you get it again, don't you? <laughs> you go, oh, boy. Woo! <clears throat> Woo! And you get your biscuits and gravy? Throw three or four eggs over here on the side of it, just the right consistency. What I'm trying to say is that some people say, I've already heard that. Yeah, you've already eaten that before too, but you love it again. You know why? Because that guy that wrote that song and we sang at Vacation Bible School, sing them over again to me. Not biscuits and gravy. No, the wonderful words of life. You know why? Because when you taste and see that the Lord is good, it's a flavor you come to love. And the more you eat it, the more you love it. Well, teaching people sometimes is repetitive. You repeat it because not everybody got it. Oh, I got it. I'm glad you did. And I enjoy a second plateful. Now I'm going to get over here because so-and-so hadn't got it yet. He slept through the first one. I got to get it in him this time. Well, what about, well, I, he's not getting it. I'm going to get, I'm going to wear him. I'm going to wear you out this morning. <laughs> now, would a preacher ever do that? He would only do it for one reason. Because if you don't get this word in your heart, brother, you ain't going to make it. And I'm not here just to see if I can preach sermons. So well, it's your problem, not mine. It is my problem. I have to give an account for the man's soul. If the church isn't doing good, you uh, fuss at them, talk to them, or what? You give them what you got. You let them have it because you don't want them to perish. You don't want them to perish. So you preach the word. This is called feeding. Are you in Jeremiah yet? Chapter 3 and verse 15. He said, and I will give you pastors according to my heart which shall feed you with what? Knowledge and understanding. Who gives pastors? Why? Because people need it. Now, if people need it, they should find one. Or as Malachi said, the priest's lips should have the word of God in it, and the people should seek it at his mouth. That's your responsibility. Look in chapter 23 and verse 4. 
and I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them and they shall what no more. How do you kill fear? With the word. But as he said, I will give you somebody whose words will impact your life and the thing that will flee is fear. You've got to get that. You've got to have that. They will fear no more, nor be dismayed, confused, or confounded. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. We're going to be blessed. Because God didn't bring us here, send us here, make preparation for us here to disappoint us down the road. This word is a marvelous effect on whoever is willing to receive it. It's not just a word that somebody had one time. It's the words of life. This is my favorite. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. Paul said to Timothy, beginning in verse 12, chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4. You've heard this one before because I've used it as often as I can and I get to now. Let no man despise thy youth. But be thou an example of the believers. You live it. In word, live it. In conversation, behave. In love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He said, be like that. Let people see that, those traits in you. In verse 13, till I come again, do this. Do this. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. That's teaching. Neglect not the gift that was given to you by prophecy, the laying on of hands of preparatory. Verse 15, meditate, ponder these things. Give yourself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. And take heed unto yourself and to the doctrine. Get it right. Continue in them for in doing this, you shall both save thyself and who else? Those that hear you. Who was he talking to? Was he talking to a young minister? He sure was. What did he emphasize to the minister? His association and relationship with the word of God for himself. You read it. You study it. You make application of it to your life. You overcome. You be an example to the believers. Know what you're saying when you say it. Know what you're preaching that you understand this when you say it. Be confident of that. Make sure you've had this revealed to your heart and then say it to these people because they need it. They need it. You need it. All of you. You need this. Not because I said it. Not because I'm saying it. You need it because it's in the book. I just happen to be the one broadcasting. This is what we need. This is what he said. And he said, for in doing this, at that last verse, he said, when you do this, preacher, I've got to count on this. Because sometimes I think this ain't working. But I shut my eyes and say, I'm going to believe what he said, not what I see. For in doing this, thou shalt not only save thyself, but all them that hear you. What a premium God puts on proper ministry. That if they'll do their part, give themselves to this work that God gives them, this anointing, not only will God save them, but all those who hear. You can't get it better than that. It obviously implies that this word is going to change everybody until they're all in favor with the Lord. Because God isn't going to save somebody that's not in favor. So this word and this time and attention given and this effort and this passion and care for people is going to change them. And they're going to be saved just like you are. Let me tell you a second thing preachers do, pastors, teachers, is they lead the way. Lead by example. There's a verse in the Bible, I think it's in Ephesians, you don't have to turn over there to it, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, that tells us this, that you're not to be slothful. 
but followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How important is an example? I don't you all shout me down, but it is important. It is important. I think it is very important. Remember Paul said one time, you know, these things that I'm telling you, remember who taught you? Remember who you learned them from? I haven't misled you. He said, I haven't misled you. I haven't done you wrong. I haven't taken advantage of you. I give my heart to you. I labor in your presence. I care about what happens to your life. I don't want you to perish. And if you're not doing good, I'm going to lean on you pretty hard because if I don't lean on you, you're going to perish. And if you're going to perish, I don't want you to perish on my clock. I don't want you to do that. Peter told me in 1 Peter 5, he said, you elders, you men that are called to lead and stand before the people and oversee the well-being of the church, you're to be examples to the flock. You're to be examples to the flock. Another thing that we do is to warn people. People love to be warned. <laughs> Proper people love to come to church and have somebody warn them. But look in Colossians. Are you close to Colossians? Play like you're close to Colossians from uh, Jeremiah. Go all the way back to Colossians chapter 1. Look at the end of chapter 1. Paul says, everybody I meet, everybody I meet, I have a drive and a passion for this. Everybody I meet, he said, I warn them. I warn them of the dangers and the evils and the demonic presence around them. I warn them about the judgments to come. Remember that one ruler that Paul spoke to? And he said, whoo, you are beside yourself because he reasoned with him about the judgment to come. He didn't back off. Why should he back off? The man's dying. You're like a dead man in a hospital room dying and you don't want to offend him. He's dying. The world's dying. God's going to judge all your nice, loving people if they don't get right with the Lord. Getting right with God was the great purpose, I believe, of the church. The place where people come to get it right. And he puts in the church those not perfect Ordinary people with words, words, just words, words that are lived, words that are followed, words that have meaning, and you impart those words. I think the only thing ministers today, if they're valid, if they're real, the only thing they can offer you is words, words. And you've got to choose whether those are words that you believe or not. It's your choice. If they're good words, believe them. If they're not, you don't have to. But Colossians 1, are you there? Whom we preach, warning every man. Is that verse 28? Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. That would make the leadership in a church like an Old Testament watchman. Remember the watchman idea? The one who watched over the people? And when he saw the enemy coming, he would blow the trumpet. Ezekiel. Can you find Ezekiel? Right after Matthew. Go back to Ezekiel. Right before Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at it for just a moment. I want to point this out. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people in Shelbyville. And, uh, no, excuse me. Speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet, and warn the people, then whosoever, now listen to this, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. It's your fault. He heard the sound of the trumpet. 
and did not heed the warning. I'm afraid that's far too common today in the church. They hear it. They just don't need it. In verse 6, But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, people don't like to hear that, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take away any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity for sure, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. He died because of his sin for sure. That's fair. But the preacher never warned him. The watchman said nothing because he didn't want to offend them. He wanted them to like him more than he wanted them to be right with God. So he said, verse 7, Thou, O son of man, I have set you a watchman upon the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word. That's what we've been talking about. You shall hear the word at my mouth and shall warn them for me. Now verse 12. Therefore thou son of man say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the days of his transgression as for the wickedness of the wicked. He shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness, neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness. Oh, I've been to church. I go to church. I've been baptized. I've joined. I've done. I've given. That won't save you. All your goodness won't save you. We're still talking about heeding the word and paying attention to the word of God. In verse 13, when I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trusts in his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. You know what, folks? God is a righteous God. God is fair. You hear me? God is fair. God has deceived nobody in this room. All he said is, this is the way, walk in it. You all can because I've given you a will. I've warned you. I've told you how. You can make that choice. Nobody can keep you from it. If you don't want to, nothing else you do can save you. Amen. Nothing else you do can substitute for the way of God. Oh, and people will argue with you today. I'm sure if we were... Hooked up to the world today, they would just be screaming and yelling and throwing stuff at this place. But we're not quite yet big enough place for people to want to throw anything at us. But I could care less. Look at verse 17. Yet he said, the children of thy people say the way of the Lord is not fair. It's not equal. But God says, but it's for them. Their way is not equal. Well, that's not right. That's not fair. Look at all we've done, how far we've come. We've come this far. I mean, that, it's not fair all of a sudden to not. It's like five foolish virgins. They were virgins. They had oil. They had lamps. They were dressed right. They were in the same company. They all looked the same. They all acted the same. They were all waiting for the same thing. Except five of them didn't have enough oil. Five of them did. And Jesus said to the five that got that far, got that close, he said, I never knew you. See, this is serious. You're living souls this morning. All of you have a soul. It's precious in the sight of God. It was made, your life was made to serve God. You're made in the image of God. God wants your life to be committed and loyal to him. There's ways that God speaks to us that will correct us, which is our last point about what they do, is correct people. You just have to correct people. How many of you know that sometimes you see wrongs? People have done something wrong, have committed a sin. Should we ever deal with sin in the church? Is there ever a time that it is proper for the leadership to deal with a sin in the church? In 1 Corinthians 5, they did. They said, dismiss him. Don't let somebody like that stay in your midst. That's an abominable thing that they did. It's the most enjoyable thing a preacher's ever done is put people out of church. It's horrible, terrible. But there's got to be a commitment in your heart to preserve the purity of the word in the church. If you don't want to live it, go somewhere else. Is that fair to say that? But you're going to run everybody off. I doubt that. 
There's too many people that are committed to the Lord here. But sometimes you have to fix things. You have to deal with things. Some things on a different level, some things lower, some higher, and you've got to have wisdom in dealing with all of these different kinds of things. But when behavior is not right, 2 Timothy 3 talks about it. When people are not doing right, you've got to deal with it. That's just something that you have to deal with. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. Nobody enjoys it. Nobody likes to see it happen. Nobody enjoys it happen. But sometimes it just has to be done. God holds you to it. It could be a test. You'll find out how sincere you are. The scriptures were given by God for the purpose of correction. Listen to it. All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what we give ourselves to. That's what you come to get. And when you get it, you give yourself to it so that we're all in the same boat in the same way. Now, in closing, John the Baptist, it said, was a man who would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's his ministry. That's his job. How do you do it? With words. Who do you do it for? The ones that God has chosen to hear his words. A natural man can't. Common, unsaved people can't. And he brings us here to hear his word. And this is what he wants us to do. If you'll follow me, I want to close with this. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking in verse 31. Remember about those five foolish and five wise virgins? Here's what it said before we read Matthew 25. He said, concerning the wise virgins, he said, they that were ready went in. They that were ready obviously were made ready. Whatever it took for them to be called ready, they took it. And because they had a heart to take it, God took them. They were his people. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 and verse 31, he said, but rather seek ye, you out there, the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's what he really, really wants to do. Verse 36, and you yourselves, you, Today, as you leave, you go home. Go wherever you go. And you yourselves be like unto men that wait for their Lord. When he shall return from the wedding, that when he openeth and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately, because they're waiting for him. Verse 37 says, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And know this or this note, that if the good man of the house had known what hour, he would have gotten himself ready. He would have watched and not suffered his house to be broken through. Remember Jesus warned us in, in the same book of Luke 21, like a snare is coming on the whole world. Don't be caught unawares. You're being told about it now while it's peaceful in your life. Now it's up to you. Verse 40, he said, be you therefore ready also. For the son of man is coming at an hour that you think not. And he that is coming is able to keep you from falling in Jude 1. Jude 24. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we know today from those parts of your book that are clear to us that we're at the end. The difficult, perilous times are truly here today unlike any other time in history. We see the festering sores of sin all around us in this world. 
the immorality, the indecency, the vulgarity of people's lives and speech and music everywhere. God, allow us to be sensitive to your word and forsake all of those things in this world, knowing that death is in them all. Death is lodged in it. I ask you to bless those that are seated here this morning, those who hear this message in other places in the country and the world, that no word shall escape them hearing it and dealing with it and prayerfully that they'll understand it. I ask you to bless us with all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.